top security vendors collaborate on sharing threat intelligence, and a state asserts its authority to assure the safety of medical device apps. These stories and more coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. We start off today's security report with a conversation about cyber threat intelligence sharing. What you'll hear is a discussion on automating threat intelligence sharing, specifically what's being done by the Cyber Threat Alliance. Security vendors Fortinet, Intel Security, Palo Alto Networks, and Symantec founded the alliance three years ago, but the not-for-profit information sharing and analysis organization didn't kick into high gear until earlier this year. That's when the Alliance added two new members, Checkpoint Software Technologies and Cisco, as well as a handful of affiliate members. And the ISAL named its first president, Michael Daniel. Until January, Daniel served as cybersecurity coordinator and special assistant to the president in the Barack Obama White House. In the conversation I had with Daniel, he explains why the Cyber Threat Alliance is not like other information sharing and analysis organizations. And they're all cybersecurity vendors of one flavor or another. Some of that has to do with the nature of the platform that we're using and how we're starting this thing out. Unlike a lot of ISOs, this one actually has a sharing requirement. In order to participate and stay a member in good standing, you have to share a certain amount of cyber intelligence per day. So to be a member, you basically have to be able to generate a fair amount of cyber intelligence on a daily basis. A lot of companies aren't going to be able to do that. And then the second thing is that because of the nature of our platform and the way that we drive for transparency and accountability, there's no anonymity behind who's submitting the data in our platform, meaning that it's always tagged to whoever submitted it. Now, they will anonymize their customer data, so we can't tell, nor is it terribly important to know where that data came from, but it's always obviously Symantec's data or Cisco's data or Rapid7's data or whatever. So those two things sort of mean that it's difficult for companies that aren't providing services to others to participate in this right now. Since its founding, the Alliance has shared information on botnets, mobile threats, and indicators of compromise related to advanced persistent threats, as well as advanced malware samples. The Alliance considers the cracking of the code on the ransomware malware known as CryptoWall version 3 as a notable milestone in its relatively short history. The Alliance says the disclosure caused cybercriminals to create CryptoWall version 4, which the Alliance also uncovered and contends had limited success as a ransomware threat. The information is shared in a form using the STIX format. STIX is a structured language for cyber threat intelligence sharing. And it's shared on a near real-time basis, and uh, it's loaded up into our database that's associated with the platform, and it's actually given a score. You get more points for a package that includes context, threat actor names, uh, that kind of thing. You get more points for being first, so there's an encouragement to get the information in quickly. Accumulating points matters. They help judge the merits of the data being shared. Members are rewarded with greater levels of access to threat intelligence based on the value of the information they've contributed to the Alliance. What do Alliance members do with the threat intelligence information they share? Various vendor companies can download information, can extract information, the indicators of compromise, the other stuff, the other information from the database. They all are responsible for figuring out how to integrate it into their various products. So if you're a member company, you can draw on that intelligence to update your products, for example. 
Though Cyber Threat Alliance vendor members have access to the same intelligence information that can be incorporated into their products, Daniel says the ISAL is not anti-competitive. In fact, we're trying to be pro-competitive. I would argue that done correctly, the Cyber Threat Alliance will actually allow the cybersecurity industry to compete more effectively at a different level in the value chain. How so? Because they'll start to compete less on what they know and more on what they do with what they know. If you have this larger pool of common information, it'll be harder for companies to say, I know something my competitor doesn't know. And instead, they'll have to say, I do better things with that data than my competitor. I'm faster. I integrate with your enterprise better. I'm cuddlier. I'm easier to use. However, they want to you know, structure their competition, but it means that they're going to have to compete higher up the value chain. The Alliance's platform will allow it to organize and structure threat information into adversary playbooks, simply turning abstract threat intelligence into actionable, real-world protections. And that should allow members to speed up information analysis and deployment of the intelligence into the respective products. There's almost an infinite variety of malware. If you, as soon as you come up with an IOC for a piece of malware, the bad guys can rewrite the code and the signatures don't work anymore, right? However, it is much harder for the bad guys to re-engineer their business processes, the playbook that they use to carry out a particular, say, ransomware campaign. Like, that's a lot harder to re-engineer because business processes and other things, that's harder. So what we want to do is actually start building up not just indicators of compromise, but literally playbooks of how the bad guys are doing various campaigns. And if we can build up these playbooks of how the bad guys are doing these campaigns, then we can work with law enforcement around the world, work with others, and actually disrupt those operations much more effectively. What I would like to do is start producing some of those playbooks and doing some of that disruption over the next year. In one respect, Daniel sees the Cyber Threat Alliance as a provider of commodity threat intelligence that should benefit the entire cybersphere. If we start doing the grunt work of the sharing of the indicators of compromise with the cybersecurity vendors and they can sort of automatically update their system, then other ISACs and ISALs can spend their time sharing the information that's really very specific to their industry. They don't have to work as hard at sharing the commodity IOCs. That means that they should be able to be more effective at what they want to do as well. You know, I'm hoping that we can have a multiplier effect across the whole ecosystem. That's Michael Daniel, president of the Cyber Threat Alliance. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman and three mobile health application vendors have reached settlements over misleading privacy and marketing practices. Those settlements could potentially have ramifications for other developers, especially if other states follow New York's lead with their own related enforcement actions. Looking into this story is Healthcare Info Security Editor Marianne Kolbasak-McGee. Hi, Marianne. Hi, Eric. First off, what's the skinny on these settlements? New York State's recent individual settlements with three vendors, Mattis, Runtastic, and Cardio, that sold their mobile health apps online, was the result of a year-long investigation by the AG's office. The settlements require each company to amend deceptive statements about their apps and modify their privacy policies to better protect consumers, while also making clear that their apps are not medical devices and are not approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. In total, the three companies have also agreed to pay $30,000 to settle the cases. How unique are these settlements? 
They're quite unusual. First off, it was a state, not the federal government, going after these mobile device app makers. Schneiderman acted because the federal law that regulates medical devices cannot be applied to products sold directly to consumers, such as these mobile apps. Privacy attorney Kirk Nara of Wiley Rhine characterizes the settlements as the single most interesting case so far this year. The state government went after them for a combination of points, accuracy-related issues, privacy-related issues, and other disclosures to consumers. There's this issue of sort of all this non-HIPAA healthcare data that's being created through wearables and mobile apps and websites and sort of all these things. And there had been a bunch of government activities during, during the Obama administration to sort of flag that issue and start down the path to having regulation for what's unregulated today. Obviously, those efforts are probably going to stall for the foreseeable future. And I think what this is, is the state jumping in and starting to fill in those gaps. So other states will follow Schneiderman's lead? Privacy attorney Stephen Wu thinks so. He says that some states are going to take on privacy more, especially now that there has been a pullback by the federal government on privacy. Wu was referring to Congress's and President Donald Trump's dismantling of privacy protection adopted late last year by the Federal Communications Commission. But because of Trump's and GOP lawmakers' aversion to regulation, it's unlikely we'll see changes in HIPAA privacy protections aimed at consumer device makers anytime soon. That's why some states may take action. Back to New York, will we see other cases regarding medical device privacy coming from Schneiderman's office? It's certainly a possibility. The AG's investigation looked at 20 apps, and Schneiderman's office tells me that it has identified other apps that it considers misleading in similar ways to the ones that were involved with the three settlements, and that it could take further action down the road. Thanks, Marianne. Thanks, Eric. Finally, The U.S. federal government has withdrawn a summons seeking Twitter to unmask an anonymous user who claims to be a government employee and has been criticizing the new administration. Twitter has sued the government to get the summons dismissed and protect the identity of the user. ISMG Security and Technology Editor Jeremy Kirk has this report. The election of Donald Trump prompted a never-seen-before social media phenomenon, dissatisfied U.S. government employees taking to Twitter and skewering the new administration. The sharp and humorous criticism has been delivered via anonymous Twitter accounts that appropriate the badges of federal agencies. The anonymity is for good reason. Linking the critiques to real identities could result in harassment or worse. The administration has already established that it has a thin skin when it comes to dissent, but it may have backed down already from one of the first free speech tussles. The government has withdrawn a summons seeking to unmask someone who criticized U.S. immigration policy on Twitter. That comes after Twitter filed a lawsuit asking a federal court to quash the summons, which came from the Department of Homeland Security and the Customs and Border Protection Agency. The summons seeks IP addresses, usernames, phone numbers, account logins, and mailing addresses for an account created in January. The account claims to be run by either one or a group of government employees within U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is part of DHS. It has published tweets critical of President Trump's plan to fortify parts of the U.S. border with Mexico. The project has been criticized for both its expense and effectiveness. Twitter says the summons was issued under part of the U.S. code that is intended to compel production of a narrow class of records related to the importation of merchandise. But the company contends that the government's investigation has nothing whatsoever to do with the import of merchandise. 
The American Civil Liberties Union, which is representing the person or people running the account, says that the right to speak anonymous against the government is protected by the First Amendment. The ACLU says that the government hasn't given any reason to unmask the anonymous speaker, which leads to concerns that is simply trying to stifle dissent. Twitter's challenge focused on whether the summons could be further justified by the government on civil or criminal grounds. And on those points, it appears the government has given up. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.